This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, this is Wally Stoker of The Babies. And hey, this is Tony Brock from The Babies. You're listening to the Growing Up Rock podcast. This is the Growing Up Rock Podcast with your host, Stephen Michael. Hey, I'm super psyched to bring you guys a special episode of Growing Up Rock. With me today on the phone, I've got Wally Stalker and Tony Brock from the rock band The Babies. Fellas, what's going on? Good, how you Hello, doing? Steven. How are you? I'm doing awesome. Thanks for asking, you guys. So the Babies were an influential British rock band formed in the mid-70s that had sort of a guitar-driven hard edge to them, but with huge melodic hooks that were, for sure, AOR-ready. Tony and Wally were original members along with John Waite, and later on, Jonathan Kane and Ricky Phillips came into the band. The band broke up in 81, but recently reformed without Wait and Kane in 2013 and released a new record called I'll Have Some of That. So we want to start early on in your careers and hear a bit of your growing up rock stories. Tony, what was it that drew you to playing drums early on in your life? Well, I started off playing guitar. My mom was a keyboard player in the choir, you know, in, in our church, and, and I used to have to go up and sing soprano and get goosed at the same time. But, you know, I used to go with my mum with the church, and then uh, I tried playing guitar, and I was absolutely useless. That's why, why we got Wally. <laughs> and uh, so we needed a drummer, and I tried it, and, and I was only well, 13 years old, and I tried it, and just it was just uh, it was in the blood. You know, it just felt so fantastic. And Wally, what about guitar for you? Did you start off playing guitar uh, right away? Yeah, I guess probably when I was around oh, nine or ten, I guess. You know, I was I was always into music, and uh, I used to watch um, bands like The Shadows on TV, and you know, was just sort of captivated by um, Hank B. Marvin and. Uh, you know, the whole sound of the shadows. And um, mm-hmm. my dad had an old acoustic sitting up on top of the wardrobe. And I asked him, you know, if I could get it down. I started messing with it. And sort of it all really kind of started from there, you know. I was kind of self-taught. and But those earlier influences, I guess, sort of got me on my way kind of thing, you know. Right. And Tony, you started very early age. You were a professional drummer at 15. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Uh, I was lucky enough to, uh, my first producer was Greg Lake from uh, Emerson Lake and Palmer. Wow. So, uh, you know, I've paid my dues, trust me, over and over. But we got, I've, I've had a lucky career in that sense because 
the band I was in was produced by Greg, as I said. And then um, when that band, it was a band called Strider, I, I moved to uh, London and joined a band called Strider. We used to play the Marquee Club all the time. And Wally and I, we didn't know each other then, but we grew up listening to the same people, uh, you know, like The Who and, and Led Zeppelin and obviously Free. And Wally introduced me to Backstreet Crawler. And, but I was lucky enough to be in, a, in that band, Strider, and we used to play every week at a place called the Marquee Club. And uh, Zeppelin would play it, The Who would play it, Free would play it, and uh, I've got pictures of you know all, all us together. That's, that's how I met John Bonham and, and got blown up by... Uh, Keith Moon a couple of times, you know. <laughs> so that's um that's amazing because I mean you guys actually were around and grew up in a very historic time yeah. for rock and roll, in my opinion. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, it was such a, a lucky thing for me. I mean, I hate dropping names. I'm not trying to drop names to be showing off. I just have to tell you the names, otherwise you don't. Understand. You're not going to understand where we came from, you know, and and uh, so all these bands were our, our mates. And Adrian Miller, the first manager from the Babies, he hounded me and hounded me after we. He would come and watch me warm up for Zeppelin and people like that. And he was trying to put the super group together. And finally, when my band broke up, he finally talked me into going down to the the baby's uh, rehearsal room and there was myself and Michael Corby and then we started holding auditions and we got, you know, John Waite and uh, of course we, we needed a guitarist and so uh, Wally was, uh, we used to advertise then, you know, and then we put an ad out to, uh, you know, say, <laughs> you know, plus wages. So if you saw if you saw an ad in one of the papers, Plus Wages, I mean, everybody was calling. So <laughs> Wally came down and uh, obviously he was one of the last people to come in. And it was just magic where Wally and I locked together and just we both knew that we loved the same bands, the groove and the English backbeat. So had you and Wally known each other before that audition for the babies? No. No. Okay. Uh, no, but we've been um, dear friends ever since, you know. Well, obviously, I mean, it's gone throughout time, and you guys are back together now, and it's the two of you, so obviously there was a connection, a musical connection there at some point, for sure. And just backing up a little bit, you guys were hanging in these London clubs and hanging out with the likes of Zeppelins and the Who's and, and folks like that. Going back a little bit, what were some of the like what were some of the first rock and roll records that, that you each bought growing up? Well for me it would have been bands like Cream. Clapton, yeah. You know, the Moody Blues, uh The Move, um, Small Faces, The Who. Mm. You know, bands like that. But of course you know, they were still getting their feet wet, too, because, uh, you know, they were sort of, um, they hadn't reached that sort of uh, super group mm -hmm. status that they're at now, you know. Um, right. So we kind of, we were fortunate enough to see all those bands in their sort of early stages. Mm -hmm. And 
they're the kind of records that I would buy. Um, of course, when I heard the first Led Zeppelin record, you know, um, but, you know, bands like that. And then, of course, Free came along and, you know, I'd go and see them. But I was into uh, bands like Taste and, you know, with Rory Gallagher and right. Oh, just so many. I mean, it, there was so much music going on at that time. I was building up quite a record collection back then, you know. Right. Yeah, no doubt. And I I had heard rumors that Led Zeppelin back in the early days, Zeppelin really wasn't that great of a band early on. Is that is there any truth to that? Or, you know, was it personal preference thing where some people might say they weren't that great, but others would say they were amazing? You know, I think the legend went on to become much bigger, but were they a good band early on? It depends on how you look at it, because for me, they were always a great band because of their, you know, they were so inventive and they really took the reins and, and guided a lot of rock bands. I mean, they certainly influenced me a lot. Mm. And uh, John and I, we, you know, hang out and uh, we were have the same taste in music. And uh, But they were always, some might say, you know, they were always a bit shaky, just like we were. Everybody had their shaky nights but they're they're uh, they were so clever i mean john paul jones is such such an un- underrated per- uh, person it's unbelievable i mean that man is a genius yeah from what i understand he had a lot to do with the musical arrangements uh for that band listen you know uh cashmere uh, alone mm-hmm. with all the mellotrons and the strings and the the uh, the timing of it all, I mean, it's just incredible. Right. Just incredible. I mean, so they had a lot to deal with, and they were they all had their own characters. So, you know, of course, there was a, an awful lot of drinking going on in those days. So, yeah. <laughs> Some nights we were a little bit shaky, maybe, as you said, but there was a certain standard in the English that we need to keep, you know. Sure. We stole all the English backbeat drumming and everything from uh, Southern America anyway. Right. And uh, all the black soul music is what I used to listen to. And a lot of English drummers and uh, people used to listen to that. So and we just turned it into our, made it our own. Yeah, and I can imagine, you know, I would talk to you about some of the concerts you guys saw growing up, but uh, that influenced you in one way or another in, in rock and roll. But the bottom line is you guys were around the Marquee Club and clubs like that in England when, you know, a lot of this stuff was happening, whether it was Zeppelin or, or The Who or The Faces, things like that. I mean, it's it's probably unbelievable some of the things that you guys have seen over the course of that time early on, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. That's how we... I came to met Rod Stewart, you know, through the uh, small faces and I mean the faces then, because right as we were signing as the babies, the same day, well, the, actually the day after we just signed papers with Christmas Records with the babies, the next day I was on the plane pretty much to uh, Canada where we were uh, to make our first record with Bob Ezrin. But I got a phone call from Rod saying, will you come and join the band? I said, you're kidding, right? I said, yeah. <laughs> so I, mean, I said, no, I can't do it because I was 
gonna go yeah. about to record my first record of my own. Now, did he want you to join the Faces or join his solo band? Oh no, join his solo band. This is in '74. Yeah, okay. He had just left the Faces at that point, right? Yeah. Yeah. You guys, and we'll get into this a little bit later on, but you guys would both end up playing with Rod at some point after the babies, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So you guys meet, who knew John Corby and Adrian Miller? Adrian was the one that came to me Okay. at, at the Marquee Club and, and just kept bugging me and bugging me and bugging me till I finally went down to the rehearsal and uh, and played with Michael and and that's when the the band sort of I really got the idea of what they wanted to do and it it matched what I wanted to do. They wanted a John Bonham esque sort of drummer and that's what I was and hopefully still am. Yeah. And we needed uh, someone like Wally who plays like Paul Kossoff and and that's you know and it, he. He plays his ass off all the time, and uh, that's what that's what we love. We just that's how the babies were. I mean, it's a silly name, but the actual music. That's why we're still alive today, is because the musical standard is incredible. I I still believe the records that we made uh, have integrity and the uh, quality of what we did and. It holds its own, obviously. That's why we're still together. Oh, still today. And I think I read that The Babies was just basically the name The Babies was a goof on on this kind of clean-cut, almost boy band type image. But the music was a contrast to that because it had this heavier edge. Yeah. You know, back in the mid-70s because it was a heavier edge for that point in time. Is that accurate? I mean, yeah, absolutely. The Babies, I mean, is a total contrast to what our music was. I mean, you know, you wouldn't think a band like The Babies would be, uh, with that name, would have such a heavy sound and rock and roll groove. So, like I said, we were all going for the same direction, and that's why it worked. Yeah, and you guys got signed on, you guys had like a four-video pack, a four-song video, is that right? Yeah, it was, uh, it was just a three-song. What we did was we um, we had gone in, numerous sort of demos had been cut, but when we uh, finally had the, the lineup that we uh, were looking for, we went back in and we cut three demos, just audio demos. Back then, you know, you'd have to do the rounds at, you know, the record company rounds, and play them your demos, and then they'd want to come and see a show. And so we decided to try and sort of cut some corners. We decided to put a video together, incorporating these three uh, audio tracks that we had. And we approached a TV producer, uh, Mike Mansfield. He had a show called Supersonic in the UK at that time. And um, kind of similar to Top of the Pops, but uh-huh. uh, more more elaborate, you know, more um, pyrotechnics and things like that. But um, and he said, "Yeah, you know, I'll do it." So we went into a little BBC uh, news studio. wasn't a very big room, and just basically, um, you know, mimed 
lip sync to um, these three tracks that we had and just sort of cut a a very simple sort of demo tape. Yeah. Very psychedelic, though, for the, you know. Yeah. Right. So, and then, of course, we ended up with a video of the band playing these three songs, which we could then shop and go into the A&R department at the record companies and say, here, pop this in your uh, VCR, have a look, you know. That way they could see the band, see what we look like, hear the songs. You know, and to put this into perspective, because, I, you know, I, I think probably a lot of people that'll listen to this podcast, they don't necessarily have a, a frame of, of reference, which is this is 75. So, I mean, it's not like MTV is, is happening or anything like that. So to have a video, even in 75, is kind of crazy to me, but that's, that's cool. Yeah, no, we were, we were the very first band ever to get a record deal through a, a video. And, of course, since we put it out there to Chrysalis and Warner Brothers, everybody, then it started to become a frenzy. We almost we didn't really have to do a showcase or anything. They just wanted, they just wanted to sign us. And, of course, that became a thing later. Everybody do a video, but... We're pretty proud of being the first people to do that. And it, it became, like you said, it set off a, a bidding war, so to speak, because you guys ended up signing, which my understanding, one of the richest deals at that point in time, I think it was like a million bucks or something. Is that accurate? Yeah, we, it's supposed to be. <laughs> uh, uh, all, I, all I remember is our first manager throwing around a lot, uh, a lot of money in his back pocket and uh, giving us 25 pounds. Yeah, boys. <laughs> and uh, don't spend it all at once. You know, so. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we were we were on the edge still then, but uh, apparently it was a, a huge deal. And, well, it was a big, huge deal. We're making fun of it, but uh, you know how the business works. Sure. Well, you know, but we got lucky enough to uh, get our first record going, you know, with Bob Ezra in Canada. So we're lucky in that sense. And you guys, I mean, you, you mentioned uh, Bob Ezra, and over the course of time, you guys released five studio albums before the band broke up, you know, not including like anthologies and things like that. And the producers you guys worked with along that time. So you worked with Bob Ezrin, you worked with Ron Nevison. Yeah. And you worked with Keith Olson. Yeah. And I think hard rock fans will know those names because those guys worked a lot during the eighties with a lot of the hard rock and metal acts of the eighties. Ron Nevison and Ezrin, obviously Ezrin with Alice Cooper and Kiss, and Ron Nevison as well with Kiss. So you guys got the huge Kiss connection there. Yeah. And then Keith Olsen, of course, uh, worked with folks like Whitesnake and Ozzy Osbourne, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, long list of folks. So what was it like working with Ezrin on that first record? Actually, uh, my preference obviously was Ron Neverson because he worked with Zeppelin. Yep. He knew how to get the sound that I love, you know, and Wally's sound, you know, so it was 
we used to go and take the record plant mobile and go to a castle or some or a big huge house and record the drums just like Zeppelin used to with the three or four microphones, you know. Mm-hmm. And it was fantastic. I'm doing a lot of producing now, so I watched every move that all these guys did. I knew that I wanted to be a producer later on in life, and uh, so it, working with all these guys was such a privilege. And uh, we learned uh, such a lot from Ron, especially. Keith Olsen took us in a little bit of a different direction. Mm-hmm. We can get to that, but as far as I'm concerned, uh, Ron was really the one that put us on the map. I mean, as far as songs like Isn't It Time and Every Time I Think of You were with our top 10 hits and uh, and still are played today every day everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. And Wally, what about you? You feel the same way? I mean, was, was uh, Nevison your guy as well? Well, I enjoyed working with all of them, you know, yeah. with our first record with Bob. We were up in his Nimbus 9 studio in Toronto, Canada. And being the first record that the babies recorded, it was kind of a learning curve for all of us, you know. Mm-hmm. But obviously, knowing that Bob had worked with Kiss and Alice, and I think he did some work with Pink Floyd too, you know, we were still wet behind the ears kind of thing when, on that first record. So we kind of needed... His guidance, you know, Bob, and along with Brian Christensen, right, who was pretty much the engineer on that project, you know, Bob would come in and sort of finalize things. But we worked very closely with Brian. I think we all learned a lot from that first record, you know, um, as far as uh, recording techniques. And so we were kind of able to take that on. We learned what not to do. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. You you mentioned Keith Olsen taking you in a little bit different direction. And to me, uh, listening to the records, that's real apparent on my ears anyway. Uh, I think Ron Nevison, anyway, from my perspective, had a little bit more of a, I guess, a pop sensibility about him. Yeah. I mean, that's what Wally and I love is melody, you know. That's what Zeppelin do. I mean, they have a they have a sense of melody, but it flaps your trousers. You know, it just it's incredible the amount of power that that came out of Zeppelin, and it, the same thing comes out of the Babies. I mean, I'm not trying to compare us. I mean, we're not the same at all, but no. we have the same influences, obviously, as we talked about. But it's just we needed someone who knew how to get our sound. It's my opinion, the babies, you know, they always had a pop sensibility and great melodies throughout all the records. It didn't matter who was producing the records. Definitely, I could tell the difference from something like the first three records to moving on to like Union Jacks and On Edge definitely just had a little bit of a different sound, maybe um. I hate to use the word a little bit heavier, but maybe that's kind of what it came off to me a little bit. Yeah, uh, of course, uh, some of that came from adding two different members Mm -hmm. because John didn't want to play bass anymore. And uh, so we had to get a bass player, which is Ricky Phillips, and uh, who is now in Sticks. Yep. And we had to get a, a keyboard player to 
take place of because Michael Colby used to play guitar and keyboard, so we would just be the four of us, but it ended up now being five, mm-hmm. so you have two extra influences on the record, and that's what we were not fighting, but we were trying to make them understand where we came from and how we grew up and get them to mold into what we like. Obviously, they grew up in America, so they had a slightly different view, but they understood what we were trying to do. But, of course, it it still turned out a little different. What I think Wally and I loved was from what Ron Neverson did. Right. And uh, the the mode that we were in, that was a lot of Wally and I's influence. The more people that came in the band, there was more influences, so it it went a little sideways, not in a bad way. It went in a good way. So I'm not complaining. It's just just slightly different. Looking back, I would uh, still love to have stayed with Ron Neverson, but things move on, you know. Sure. And you guys, um, in 76, you released the debut record, and there's some great tracks on that record songs that I like, and I tend to lean towards the guitar oriented heavier tunes as opposed to the ballads, just because I'm not a huge ballad person, but songs like the first track on the record, looking for love has this amazing drum intro. That's just, I mean, that's the first thing that you hear from the babies is this killer drum intro with cowbell and all and it just sets you on your ears in my opinion i i love that track
I still get asked every day how, how to do it. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty proud of it. You know, um, it's, I guess it's one one of my signature uh, rhythms, which is uh, I don't know. It feels good to have have a rhythm like that. The people look up to her and say, how did you do that? Where did, where did that come from? And, you know, I don't know where it came from. It just came from the heart and uh, just took a lot of practice and I knew what I wanted, but um, we pulled it off and uh, we're still doing it to this day. That's great. And then you end up closing the record with a bluesy number that really kind of showcases Wally and Dying Man. Wally, your work on Dying Man, quite bluesy and, and really, really good. Yeah, that's that's a good one. It's it's kind of um, that track kind of builds into that like that second section really really builds at the end there, and it was just the song. I think John and I recorded that together in you know in the same studio. Him and I just went in and just sort of jammed with each other, you know, as far as him putting down the vocal, and you know, I was just answering some of the vocal and. It kind of turned out good. Those were the, the kind of songs that we were sort of writing at that point, you know, and it was very, very sparse, just a four-piece band just going for it. Plus, on that first record, we didn't have too many songs to record anyway, you know. Um, we didn't have the catalogue that we have now, so we kind of recorded everything that we had up until that point. But, yeah, I enjoy uh, Dying Man. Yeah. Getting back to looking for love, I mean, what a great way to, you know, open up the record on yeah. side A with, you know, that drum feel and then going into looking for love, you know, it's um, yeah. it's a very basic song, but it's, it has a sound all of its own. I've never heard another song that even comes close to sounding like that. Yep. You guys laid a really good foundation with that first record, and then you move into 77 and you release Broken Heart, which, of course, had a huge hit. Isn't it time, I think, uh, reached number 13 on Billboard, right? Oh, yeah. I think it was uh, number eight. I could be wrong, but I, I, I definitely know we reached uh, it. was in the top 10. Right. Quite a while. So, and every time I think of you. So. Uh, I still want to know where my gold record is, though. <laughs> <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't give you a gold record for that? No. no. Cheap SOBs, you know? Those bastards. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, I mean, you guys are really building steam at this point. And some of my favorite tracks off of Broken Heart is I Love Give Me Your Love. One of the things that I, or one of the songs, probably, I guess you would consider this a deep track, but I love the sick groove on this song, which is, and if you could see me fly.
I love the groove on that tune. Yeah, love playing that track. Yeah, so you guys are building steam, and then you head into 78, and it's time to record head first. And something goes awry during this whole thing, because Corby and your manager, Adrian Miller, end up either leaving on their own or being asked to leave. What went down with all that? Well, basically, Michael, at that time, was just not, we have to be honest about it, and he was not keeping up, and Ron Neverson was asking him to come down to the studio and play on certain tracks, and then it just escalated into a, oh, he doesn't want me to come down there. And Wally and I would go over to his house and say, come on, let's go, you know, let's do this. Michael just got, went into a weird space in his own head and was going around the rainbow and bad-mouthing people. I, do, I just don't, we don't know why, really, this all went down, because if he had just rehearsed and come down with us and uh, stayed with us in the, in the record plant, he might still be here today. He uh, basically was uh, asked to leave. You know, because we had to keep going, unfortunately, and and the same with Adrian. That was, you know, that was a little bit to do with the record company. So they wanted us to go move on to a bigger management company mm-hmm. that had uh, Joni Mitchell and people like that to get us on bigger tours, which we ended up doing. Uh, uh, as you probably know, you know, Journey tours, Stick tours. Yeah. You- you guys toured with some amazing acts. I show that you guys did tours with ACDC, Alice Cooper, Cheap Trick, Journey, Rush. Yep, yep. All those bands. We were very lucky. And, uh, and of course, we'd be playing arenas every night with all these bands. And then on our nights off, we'd be going out doing our own shows. And we'd be filling out three to 5,000 seaters on our own. You know, so uh, they were good times. Yeah. Any of those tours stick out in you guys' mind as being amazing or particularly anything uh, of note from any of those tours? They all had their moments. Um, (laughs) You know, the Journey Tour was good for us because we got to play in front of, you know, 18,000 people every other night uh, in arenas. Um, But we did with with Alice as well. You know, he, he was touring with his... Welcome to my nightmare tour then. But he was good to us. You know, he had a lot of props and special effects on stage, so that, we didn't have a lot on, of room. That was on his plane, wasn't it, the props? Yeah. Oh. But we would travel with him on his own plane. You know, he invited us onto his plane. He had his dancers and his uh, <laughs> techs and that, you know. Um, so we all flew together, and um, he was really nice. He was really good to us. And then we were out with REO Speedwagon. We opened for them when they had that can't tuna piano or tuna fish. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, they all had their moments. Right. You know, we were, um, Cheap Trick, you know, and we do festivals with, uh, you know, Cheap Trick and Journey and oh, Molly Hatchet, 38 Special. And one particular festival I remember, there's, we had to go on after ACDC. Now, that was, uh, I mean, we know the guys from ACDC, but they were 
such an incredible band live. I mean, how did, I don't know anybody that could follow ACDC. This is Bon Scott ACDC, right? Bon Scott era ACDC. Yeah, yeah. And un- unfortunately, that uh, on that festival, that's when a, a big, huge M90 came up on stage, and I was behind Phil Rudd. And lucky I was far enough away, but this M- M90 came up on stage and landed right behind Phil Rudd and went off. And it spun him on his drum stool when he just fell off and fell onto the ground. Wow. So they carried on, and they, they did an incredible show. That's... And then, of course, we had to follow them, and that's one of the, probably one of the hardest things that I remember trying to do, but we pulled it off. It was great. We ended up having a fantastic show. We expected the audience to um, kill you. To turn a little bit on us because having the name the babies, you know, right? And like we talked about before, it doesn't match the music. But if they knew who we were, with you know, I think it was in Rockford, right? You know, yeah, Rockford, Illinois. We had a, a fantastic show. It turned out great. Anyway, it worked out for you, and then yeah, but we toured with uh, like we've been lucky enough to tour with all the best bands in the world, and. Uh, we had nothing but fun with, yeah. with, with all of them. So going back to the catalog, you released uh, Head First in 78, which for me, the title track, I love that song. That song still uh, hits my playlist every week. And there's some good tracks on that, including Every Time I Think of You, which was, that was a pretty reasonable hit for you guys, which to me, that song had a very Motown feel to it, you know? Absolutely, yeah. That's where some of our roots were coming from. They were finally coming out, you know. Right. Of course, like I said, we stole it from you guys, but uh, we made it in in the English style. Unfortunately enough, the actual song head first itself came from Wally and myself anyway. Uh, We wrote that together in my uh, little apartment. I had a piano and we... uh, came up with the melody and put it together ourselves there and took it to the band. And that's what we had to go back in and redo a couple of songs because Christmas weren't fully happy with the record that we he turned in. And Head First was one of the two or three songs that we recut on top of Head First. And uh, that became the uh, title track, obviously. And... Um, Wally and I are proud of that.
It's a great song. I love that song. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah. Exit Michael and, and your manager, and then in 1980, you guys released Union Jacks, which is the debut for Jonathan Kane and Ricky Phillips, correct? Yeah. Well, what happened was we finished Head First as a three-piece. It was just John Waite, Tony, and myself. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, Michael had departed the band at that point. And um, so we finished off Head First uh, as a three-piece. And then, of course, it was time to hit the road again to promote it, you know. Mm-hmm. With Michael being out of the picture at this point, we had to look for a keyboard player that could play guitar. And so we started to hold auditions. And that's when John Waite announced to the band that, you know, he no longer wanted to play bass. He, so why don't we look for a bass player as well? So, uh, you know, the original plan was to find a keyboard player, um, but we ended up looking for a keyboard player and a bass player so that we could go out and tour with Headfirst, you know. So that's when... Jonathan and Ricky joined the band, and so we, you know, we went out to promote that head first. How do you end up with two Americans in a British band? How did that come about? Well, I was going to ask you that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where where did where did John Kane and, and Ricky Phillips come on your radar? Yeah, well, yeah. You, you know, they were the best of the bunch. You know, we had, we held sort of open auditions and we kept going from pub to pub. You know, that was our excuse anyway, <laughs> trying to find some English guys, but <laughs> it didn't work out. Yeah, <laughs> you do yeah. you did a nationwide search or something like that? I mean, it, or did somebody know somebody and go, "Hey, I know the perfect guy for the band." That kind of thing. It really wasn't a nationwide because, you know, we were based in California, in Los Angeles. So the word got out. You know, we had people lining up around the block, basically. Sure. We boiled it down to really those two, you know, after seeing, having come back a few more times. And other than their musicianship, right. you know, you're also looking for somebody that's going to fit in. Somebody you can live with. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, you know, those two got the job. So it was out back out on the road again, promoting head first. And it wasn't until we were all done promoting that and came back to California. And then it was basically time to go back in the studio again. And that's when Chrysalis had decided that uh, they wanted to go with Keith Olsen for our, you know, for the Union Jacks record. I think because Keith had just done the Pat Benatar record for mm-hmm. Christmas Records and the success that that had, I think Christmas were really pushing for Keith to do our fourth record. And I think that's how that all came about, you know. Right. This record contained the first Babies song that I ever heard because the Babies came on my radar in mid-80s when a band I was working with covered Midnight Rendezvous, and that was the first time I'd ever heard uh, The Babies. Well, cool. So I went back and discovered a bunch of stuff, and of course that record also has Back on My Feet Again, and I like the title track, Union Jack. And let me ask this, who is singing Turn Around in Tokyo? Because that's not John Waite, right? No, that's Jonathan Kane. Okay, yeah. Yeah, no, Jonathan Kane sang that one. And uh, they're 
In fact, well, there's been two other singers. I sang uh, Silver Dreams on the Broken Heart record, and then Jonathan Cain did his solo thing with uh, Keith Olsen. So, uh, and we also did a song with uh, with Jonathan called uh, Stick to Your Guns. Okay. And so that's Jonathan Cain singing. Okay. You mentioned Silver Dreams a little bit earlier, which is what you ended up naming your studio as well, correct? Yeah. Well, you know, I think it's such a cool name. I'm not sure if it's still to this day a representation of uh, what you would think a studio would be, but I still love the name and very proud of the song. Right. And it stuck with me, so... Yep, and so you guys uh, went out on went back out on the road to support Union Jacks. Then at that point, yeah, how was Chrysalis in supporting that record? Were they okay with the member changes, and did they feel like they had you know successful record in in Union Jacks? Yeah, I think they did. Um, you know, they were always good as far as you know promoting anything that we released, and also you know would help us out with tour support and, you know, make sure we got everything that we need to go out and, you know, successfully promote the new release, you know. Yeah, that's, that was a day when uh, record companies were real record companies, you know, when they basically they were a bank. But right. at, the same, at the same time, they were uh, promoting and doing mm-hmm. all the all the uh, the grunt work that the bands these days now, even with, with our new lineup, we're doing a lot of work that we didn't used to have to do. Right. It's such a shame for all the new bands because record companies then would get you out there on the TV, on radio, you know, of course there's payola going on then. Right. But at least we got a chance to show people what we could do and you know and it's it's really hard for people these days they've got new bands i feel pretty sorry for them because they've got a i mean it's up to how many people they got on facebook yeah it's all social media now i mean it, it social media plays a huge part in it these days yeah, it's such a shame i mean i'm not you know saying that we're old or anything we're not we would we're slamming uh harder now than we did when we were in our 20s and uh, if anybody comes to see the babies now you'd be surprised at how good it really is and we're knocking people's socks off otherwise we wouldn't do it there's no point doing it unless we could do it as good as or if not better right yeah and i think i may have heard an interview with your bass player and lead singer john basaha uh and he kind of described it really well which is A lot of the bands from the 70s, if you see them today, they sound really good. I heard him put it the best. You know, these bands today, they they go out and they sound great, but then there's not a whole lot of excitement going on on stage. But I think with John and Joey in the band, it kind of injects a little bit of youth into the band as a whole, and so it's a little bit more exciting on stage to watch. Yeah, absolutely, because we're all, um, it was a lot of work finding, especially John, it took uh, months and months and months, Uh, I had my uh, Silver Dream Studios in LA, and we were auditioning singers, and again, they were around the block and it kept going on and on. And 
just, I mean, it wouldn't be easy replacing any one of the members of the babies because you take any one of us away and it sounds completely different. It would be like changing some, someone out of Zeppelin or someone out of The Who. It's, it changes the whole vibe and sound, you know. Mm-hmm. So to find someone that could sing the blues and do a good job on the baby's records, of course, we didn't want him to sound like John Waite. We just needed it to resemble what we needed the babies to be. And I got John Basaha back about uh, seven times to make sure he was the right guy. And uh, it ended up being the right guy. He's a, he's a good lad and he works really hard and plays amazing bass. And we're really proud of him. And of course, Joey is a. Uh, an incredible songwriter and a good guitar player, and that Molly and, and Joey play off of each other incredibly well. It's between the four of us, it's fantastic. Of course, we have a, have a keyboard player and the Baybets. The Baybet. The two girls that make us still make us good looking. Now, is Holly related to John? How do I answer that? <laughs> <laughs> They're basically married. No, they've been, they're they got John. the same last name, so I would think that's a little more than coincidence. John and Holly are married. Okay. Yeah. Good. And Wally, I, I would think that probably uh, having Joey in the band kind of frees you up a little bit to do things, you know, that you couldn't do in the earliest version of the babies, right? Yeah. You know, it allows me to sort of stretch out a little bit and not be tied down with, you know, rhythm guitar. Yep. You know, that's the way it was, you know, back in the old days. But he's out of his wheelchair now. <laughs> <laughs> so he's, he's, doing, uh, he's doing pretty good. And I would think also that that maybe has a little bit to do with heavying up the sound of the babies a little bit. I mean, I think the newest record, I'll have some of that that you guys released in 2013. I think it sounds a lot like the babies, you know, it has that classic sound, but maybe there's a, maybe it's the recording process itself, but maybe some of the songs are a little bit more guitar driven edge wise. Yeah, probably, but they were probably written as guitar songs anyway. You know, um, Tony and I had a backlog of different musical ideas. So, when it was time to make that record, you know, we were able to um, get out the old cassettes and dust them off and see what we had. And probably four of those songs, five of them, yeah, came from all those. Basically, uh, if Wally hadn't had a, uh, an old cassette of the old stuff that, we, that, that Wally and I recorded in my first little studio, we wouldn't have had those tracks. And uh, so they were written at the time when the babies were put in, had that character and that time. So we still captured uh, some of that authentic baby sound, you know. And, of course, I got lucky enough to produce that record in my studio. And it was uh, a wonderful thing. to. I mean, we were picking songs out of basically hiss. All we heard, we put the cassette on and... You know, and then there'll be this little bit of a guitar track and go, oh, I remember that one. (laughs) We had a month, one month, to write the songs, put them together, record them, 
mix them and get them pressed and mastered all in one month. And so if we'd have had, a, you know, another month, it would, would have been much, much better. But uh, it still turned out to be a good representation of the new babies. I think without a doubt. I mean, I think it sounds, it sounds very good. It still sounds like the babies. So uh, I think uh, you guys did a good job with that new one. Well, thank you. Yeah, we went out of our way to make sure that, you know, the drum sound and Wally's guitar sound was still still there. And, of course, you can't take the playing out of the guys. So not just because we're here together, but Wally's, Wally's guitar sound and my drum sound were part of the, the baby's sound. And like I said before, I don't think we could take any one of us away. It would be the same. And what was it like for you, Tony, producing the record for the first time? Because this will be the first Babies record that you produced, right? Yeah. Oh, well, I loved it. I mean, I've always, like I said, I watched everybody. I learned most of my stuff from Ron Neverson and knew how to get those sounds. And we bought an old board, which was used in, in the old days, an analog board, and uh, a Soundcraft 2400, which Jeff Lynn uses to this day, is has that English uh, EQ and everything. And so we were able to capture that English sound and the components of the unit enabled us to play the way we do. And as a whole, it was a little bit, it was hard, but, you know, but we still kept, you know, the same frame of mind that we did in the early days. Now, if you have a question or run into anything, do you ever text up Nevison and ask him questions from time to time? <laughs> no. No, in fact, uh, we still talk to Ron all the time, and I'm hoping we can uh, pull off. We've got a new record coming out soon, but the one after that, I'm hoping we can, uh, Ron and I can do one together. That'd be great. He's offered to do that, and there's nothing. He was uh, really happy and pleased that uh, we followed his lead. And in fact, he uh, he's emailed me and congratulated me on putting it together. Like I said, I wish we had a little longer because then the songs could have been like the title track could have been taken a little bit further. And but we had a limited amount of time. That's no excuse to the band and the. The album is still up to par, and and uh, we're very proud of it. And so is Ron, and he he wants he wants to be still part of it in the future. And to work with Ron would be a privilege for me too. Everyone's got a rock and roll story to tell, and we want to hear yours. So go to our website at growinguprock.com. That's one word: G R O W I N U P R O C K dot com. Or visit us on our Facebook page at Growing Up Rock and tell us all about it. Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Growing Up Rock, and leave us a review on iTunes. Give us a like and leave us a comment on Facebook at Growing Up Rock. Yeah, you guys have both done a lot of things post-babies, you know, from playing with Rod Stewart and Wally, you played with Air Supply for some time, right? Well, I was in Rod's band with Tony. Uh Uh-huh. For about, um, I guess, maybe a couple of years. Yeah. Tony stayed with him for 12 years. Wow. After Rod, uh, yeah, I went to Air Supply. They were changing their lineup, and 
Uh, I managed to get an audition with them, and they were off to the Far East, you know, uh, like Japan and Hong Kong and places like that. And I auditioned and got the job, and I thought, really, I was just going to do that one tour with them, you know, and then kind of move on. I thought I was just being like a hired gun, you know, just for that tour. Sure. I ended up staying with them for over three years, you know. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's the kind of band, you know, always out on the road. You know, once you pack, you never come back, you know, <laughs> nine months out of every year on the road. But good for the uh, bank account. Yeah. If you saw Wally pack, it takes nine months to, for him to do that. <laughs> <laughs> nine months to pack? <laughs> yeah, he does everything so perfectly. You should see his suitcase. It's like a it, – it would make an incredible picture. It's so perfect. Is he the one, uh, Tony, is, is Wally the guy that always is, is the last one to show up in the hotel lobby for, uh, for call? Yes. <laughs> he makes sure everything is in, in line, you know, and he takes his time to do his, everything. So, uh, you know, that's part of Wally, you know, it's, a, <laughs> it's an endearing fact. I'm familiar with his type. Having been a tour manager before, Wally is the guy that we always tell we need to leave a half hour before we actually need to leave. That way he'll be on time. So We actually got to the stage where we uh, we thought we'd get dressed. We, get, we got dressed the night before and went to sleep. And then, <laughs> and then when the alarm went off, we'd just get up and leave. You know? Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Tony, yeah. you, you've had an interesting career as well, having played with Roy Orbison and Jimmy Barnes and Elton John. How did you end up with Roy Orbison? Unfortunately, I did his last single, and uh, it never got released because, I mean, I did a session for Roy and met Roy, and, and that, was, that was just um, unbelievable to talk to one of the heroes, you know. Right. And uh, same with Elton John when we played with Elton. No, he knew more about me than I did. And uh, that's uh, just pure intelligence as far as I'm concerned. And being able to remember all those facts that he knew about me. That was, I'm talking about Elton. But Roy, unfortunately, was not feeling that good. But we did uh, an incredible session. And um, a month later, he passed away. So... Um, mm. When I say I was with Roy, I, we stayed on the phone together quite a lot. But um, I did get to do his last uh, project, which um, I'm still waiting to be released when they put it together. Right. He, I don't think he ever got to really finish the whole thing. So people are scared to put it out. Sure. You know? Or maybe it's going to be a surprise later on. Yeah. Then I went to, I don't, it's amazing, you know, Jimmy Barnes. Well, Jimmy Barnes is. Uh, Obviously, the number one male singer down in Australia. Mm -hmm. He was the first guy to, to be asked to join um, ACDC. Yeah, I think I heard that at one point in time. That's right. Yeah. Well, he's got that voice, that screaming voice that, that kills, you know, 10 blocks down. Right. But he didn't want to do it. He wanted to be his own solo artist. And um, I did a session for, for Jimmy here in L.A. and ended up staying with him and co-producing uh, seven albums for him, which became number one. Every album was number one for seven years. And uh, during that time, 
I met Keith Urban. So I got to produce Keith Urban's uh, first stuff, and that was before he was country. <laughs> really? Uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't even know he liked country at that time, you know. Otherwise, I would have taken him there. Yeah. You know, but we had a great time. Uh, Keith Urban's such an incredible guitarist and a nice man, and we had a wonderful time together. And um, we turned out some fantastic music. And I did that in between uh, Jimmy Barnes and stuff. And, of course, after playing with Jimmy for seven years, that's when I went back. I played with Eddie Money for six months. Oh, wow. I didn't see that. It's cool. Yeah, that was kind of cool. And that's when Rod found out that the babies were no longer together and uh, said, oh, okay, you got no excuse this time. And in 70, uh, well, no, 81, early 81, I joined, I joined Rod Stewart and stayed there for 12 years. Because uh, we had such a good time. and Was it Carmine that re- ended up replacing you? No, I replaced Carmine. Okay, okay. Yeah, I sang on the Foolish Behavior album. As I said, you know, I met Rod years ago in the Marquee Club, and he knew I had a uh, reasonably uh, okay voice, and uh, I ended up doing a lot of backing harmonies on the Foolish Behavior album, which Carmine played drums on. And then um, when it came round to uh, Tonight I'm Yours, I had to replace all of Carmine's drum parts. I don't know, I'm not exactly sure what went down there, but it wasn't pleasant for me to um, replace Carmine's stuff because I, I respect Carmine and Carmine respects me. Still to this day, we, uh, we're good friends and uh, I have no bad feelings towards him and he has no bad feelings towards me and he's moved on and uh i enjoy playing with rod so much and rod and i have uh became uh, good friends and i did everything from live to uh every record for 12 years so i'm very proud yeah it's a good stint so both of you guys, both you and, and Wally, you guys have done a ton of stuff, you know, even after the babies. But here we go, and we come back and we reform the babies. What, what was it that prompted you guys to bring this thing back together? Well, we've always wanted, uh, Wally and I have always talked about, and you know, we stayed in touch, obviously, over the years. And Wally was down, living down in uh, Florida at this time, and we always talked about putting the babies back together, but we tried to call John Waite numerous times, and he just wanted to just keep his own solo career going. Still to this day, uh, we don't understand why he couldn't have been with the babies and, and done his own solo project, but right. that's up to him. He decided he didn't want to be part of the babies anymore. And to be honest with you, John Bazaar has worked out better and we're actually enjoying being uh in the band when we get together we have a great laugh and um there's no hiccups in the band we all pretty much agree i mean if it's as best a band can be together and so um i called wally up and wally said yeah we're we're not gonna put this band back together without each other as we've said, Wally and I we still feel that we are the babies in terms of our sound and especially the way we play. We uh, said, let's do it. So that's when we started holding auditions in my studio for a singer. 
And so um, that's how it all started. And we flew uh, Wally out and uh, did our first uh, first song together. And it's been uh, history ever since. And we're proud of what we're doing. Yeah. We're a little older now and a little wiser, but we're, we're slamming the hell out of it. And the, the day we stop not doing it as well as we used to, we'll stop, you know. Yeah. We're not nowhere near close to that yet. We are really uh, playing as hard as we used to and, and feeling great. And we've got a lot to give to our audience yet. Yeah, and the reviews have been coming in and have been very, very positive. Yeah, that's good, huh? Yeah. That makes us feel good, you know? Right. Because it, it could have turned ugly on us, but it didn't. People are still backing us. That makes us feel really proud and, uh, you know, it's worth doing. Yeah. It is like starting all over again. Sure. After all these years. We'll be getting a younger audience coming in and uh, our fans in the late 70s, early 80s and now have kids that they've turned the baby's music onto and they love us. So it's just building and building and building and we can't wait to uh, just do our next shows, which I think we're playing um, Attic on the 4th year and then Nashville on the 5th. Yep. And then back out to California in February. Yeah, that's right. That just came in. Yep, I got I got your tour schedule right in front of me, baby. Well, good. Can, 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 you, can you send a car for us? We don't know where we're going. Well, we'll, <laughs> we'll have a bottle of champagne waiting for you. We can enjoy the ride. <laughs> the, tra- the trade's leaving again. <laughs> uh, so yeah, well, that's, that's John Basaha trying to call in. I don't know what he wants. <laughs> I won't hold you guys up too much longer. Uh, you guys have been very generous with your time. I'm looking forward to seeing you guys in January at Eddie's Attic uh, here in Atlanta. You're going to come back and say, and say hey? Yeah, there's not much of a backstage there, I don't think. But, you know, I'll definitely track you down or tap you on the shoulder. Or Yeah, please do. You can't. Uh, having a name like Stephen Michael, two first names, you've got to come see us. The, oh, of course. Absolutely. And uh, we're, we're not doing an acoustic set. We're going to uh, still blow the people's trousers off. So. Uh, oh, that's great news. That's great news. It's going to be tight on that stage. Well, we're going to put the keyboard player and, and the babettes on tables either side of the stage that'll probably work yeah they're, they're okay with it so uh i'm gonna bring my wife out to see it so i'm gonna turn my wife onto the babies as well good <laughs> you definitely gotta come say hey and um and we'll introduce you to our family too you can come meet my my wife jan and uh yeah, well, so you you and I'll definitely uh we will hook up at some point because uh you live you live in my neck of the woods, so That's right. Let's get together. Yeah, absolutely. I understand you make a great cup of tea or so it says in the bio. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, actually it's getting uh I'm still perfecting it after all these years. Okay. <laughs> good good to know, good to know. What else do we want to tell uh the listeners about? Uh if they want any information on the babies, they can go to the babies Facebook page or you can go to the babiesofficial.com website, yeah. right? Thebabiesofficial.com and you get all the information you need about what we're doing. And uh, But the biggest thing we're doing right now is the pledge. Right, pledge music, right? Yeah, and we, 
we want people to go there and buy the T-shirts, the uh, drumsticks that I've signed for sale. And the Pledge Music will help uh, offset some of the cost of doing the new record, correct? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah, you know, because it's like, like I said, it's like starting all over again. And um, we'll put everything we've got into it. It makes the fans all part of it because they get a personal piece of us. You know, they, they can come in the studio and sing on uh, head first or on or they come in and do the hand claps on um, on midnight rendezvous and they they get their own copy of that that's awesome it's all pretty great you know and there's a guitar to be to be bought with all our signatures there's drum heads to be bought there's picks which uh wally's personally played and uh signed and wally your signature gonna fit on that pick <laughs> yeah he had he had trouble you know but he's the he's still got a signature in his old age that's good it's this all helps support live and uh recorded music and i think that's important uh because anybody that liked album oriented hard rock in the 80s they need to look to the babies as being sort of a blueprint for that melodic hard rock and melodic album rock that was uh, prevalent in the 80s. Yeah, all these pieces you can get from the Pledge, they're all one-off. So um, they're going to be special pieces to own. They'll be collector's items later on and um, remade all of our hit records. We've done 14 tracks on this song, on this album. It's, tur- it's turned out really well. I mean, isn't it time? Head first. Every time I think of you, they sound just like the way we do now. It's a version version moved on from the old days. Right, updated sound. It's uh, yeah, yeah, but it still sounds like uh, still it's got, still has that baby's edge. Right, you didn't rearrange the songs completely. <laughs> no. Except I tried to get Wiley to sing one of them, but he wouldn't do it. Right. You know. I I understand. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Wally, they never let you sing, do they? Nah, it's it's hard to get a word in with seven people around you. Yeah, you just turn your amp up to eleven, you'll be okay. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, yeah. Eleven. He's he's gone past eleven. My jump is already up to (laughs) twelve. I'm to try and get above him, you know. So real quick before I let you guys go, let's do a real quick little uh, question and answer thing. Don't overthink it. I'll ask you first, Tony. Tony, if you could play in any band or any play with any artist, who would you play with? Uh, Zeppelin. What's your favorite Babies record? That would definitely be uh, Broken Heart. Okay, awesome. All right, on to you, Wally. Yep. Wally, give me a band you wish you had played with or an artist you wish you play with. Paul Rogers. I knew I knew you were going to be in free at some point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How about you? How about your two Desert Island records? Wow, that's a toughie. Sam Beneath My Feet. <laughs> <laughs> How about The Free Story? Okay. Best of Cream. All right, good. And how about your favorite Baby's record? Um... I think Broken Heart for me, too. Okay, good. All right, fellas. You guys have been awesome, man. Thank you so much for sharing your time with me. I know you guys are busy and you're prepping for tours and records and things like that. So, Oh, you're welcome, buddy. It's great to, 
great to talk to you, and I'm, uh, thank you for doing your homework. It's uh, it's a pleasure to uh, talk to someone that appreciates what we do. You know. Yep, it's important for me to keep rock and roll alive, and you guys are a part of that. So thank you for the music that you provided us thus far, and uh, I'm sure there'll be more to come. And I'm looking forward to uh, not only uh, meeting you guys and shaking your hands, but also uh, seeing the show. Yeah, great. Well, definitely come see us, you and your wife, and come and say hey. All right? We will for sure. All right, Stephen. Thank you very much. Appreciate your uh, patience with us, and I hope you've enjoyed it. Thanks, guys. All right, buddy. All right, Steve. Thank you. Bye. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 